Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for joining us once again. And thank you for joining us this week in what is our season eight finale. So you get a little break from us nattering on at you for a, for a little bit, don't you? Well, they do get a break, but we will have something actually to fill the gap. We do something special. We do. So we're back on the 8th of March with season nine, but in the interim, look out for, uh, for something, yeah, uh, that we'll be posting. Let's take a moment then to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. I'll let you do the honours, Bethan, as it's our season finale. Oh, thank you very much. I know you like watching me stumble over the names, so that's a lovely way, isn't it? So thank you so much to all of our existing Patreons, but especially our newest ones this week. We have Amy Green, Poppy, Sophie, Sarah Keats, Bonnie Quigley, Quigley? Quigley. Quigley? Sorry, Bonnie. Um, Debbie Chilvers, Shannon James, Nanu Wolstenholme. Wolstenholme, I think. Thanks, Nanu. A name that I recognise from social media. Um, Chloe Lees and Lara Benner. So thank you so much, everybody. And is that all ladies? Oh, girl gang. Do you know, I noticed that. Yeah, yeah. thank you uh, to each and every one of you. And of course, to all of our Patreon supporters. If you want to join, there's nearly 450 of you over there. If you want to join these guys and get access to 40 plus bonus episodes, 20 plus episodes of our Patreon exclusive podcast, Crime Wave, access to our book club competitions, seeing red postcards signed by me and Bethan, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week's episode takes us to a pig farm in rural Worcestershire, the neighbouring county to me. Over the years, there have been numerous examples of murderers using pigs to dispose of their victims' bodies. One pig alone would be incapable of such a task, but a sounder of pigs, easy. Did you know that a group of pigs is referred to as a sounder of pigs? I did not know that, and then as I was reading what you were reading out, I was thinking, a sounder? There's a little fact for me. I've always been a little bit scared of pigs because my great uncle had a farm. He had cows, pigs, sheep and all sorts of animals. And the pigs were the one thing that he was always really, really strict on. I mean, the dogs, obviously, but the pigs, he was very much like, you do not put your hand in the pig pens. They are not pets. They are not fun little pigs like you see on the telly. And honestly, Mark, these pigs were huge. They were massive, massive, massive ones. And I remember being like maybe six or seven and absolutely terrified because he literally did an impression of like what would happen to your hand if you put your hand in he was like you'd have no bones left they would chomp your hand and I was just like oh okay 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 and ever since then I've always been really nervous of pigs because of that and to know that they will eat anything it's quite unnerving isn't it because you do think of them as like babe pig in the city and yeah they're really not they they are sharp-teethed, big, heavy-jawed creatures. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much they weigh, but a fully-grown pig is probably about 30 stone. So they're massive beasts, really. So as I said, there have been numerous examples of killers feeding their victims' bodies to a sounder of pigs. Their ultra-sharp teeth and just kind of general greedy piggy nature. Yeah, make for sounds effective... like me. <laughs> it makes for an effective and efficient way to dispose of a body. But that's not what happened on this particular pig farm in Worcestershire. Just a little red herring from me. Oh, I was totally not expecting you to then not give us a case about that. 
so no, a brutal murder was carried out there, but the body wasn't fed to the hungry pigs on the farm. It was disposed of in a far more gruesome way. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to take you back in time to the 1950s to regale you with a story of young love. Oh, I love this, Mark. It's a bit of a, a bit of a twist for you. But if you want to start writing romance novels, can you imagine? I will back you. <laughs> Beth and they would be so graphic, wouldn't they? They would with be me. I wouldn't be able to help myself. Yeah. They would be absolutely horrific. <laughs> the National Federation of Young Farmers Clubs, or Young Farmers, as it's more commonly known, was established in 1921 with the aim of uniting and educating the children of farmers. The organisation is still going strong today, and although it remains firm in its aim of uniting and educating young farmers, these days, those young farmers tend to exploit their membership with the simple aim of getting fucked in every way possible. Oh, how times have changed. You may have seen a branch of young farmers near you, a bunch of excited teens taking over a small rural town on a Friday night, going from bar to bar, sounds great to be fair, but they can be a pretty riotous crowd. Back in the early 50s, however, they were less raucous, and in isolated communities, being a member of the Young Farmers was one of the few ways to build a network, to meet similar people from similar backgrounds, and of course many marriages have been born out of those social gatherings organised by the Young Farmers. I guess because it's a a lifestyle that if you've not been brought up in it is going to be a hell of a shock for somebody who's just a townie that wants to marry somebody who's a farmer, or get in a relationship with someone who's in farming because it's such it's just your life it's not a job that you would just do it's not just your career that you do your nine to five it is your life so I can understand why why this is almost needed yeah and also uh, these are really isolated communities farmers might not have a neighbour for 10 or 15 miles so it was a way of people meeting other people from similar backgrounds and forging friendships relationships uh, certainly in those very isolated communities. It might make me sound far too young but sometimes I listen to Radio 1 in the car like to just give a bit of balance that sometimes I listen to Classic FM so don't come at me for being too young but they always have a young farmer guy who comes on and chats and he must have rung in years ago and he's called like Tom the Young Farmer and I always assumed he was just a young farmer, didn't realise it's like the National Federation of Young Farmers Clubs so he must actually be part of that club and he must he must have gone on to talk about their like experiences or something like that rather than him actually just being an early 20s farmer. <laughs> Yeah, he must be. I'd say he's affiliated with yeah. the association for sure. There we go. I've learned so much already, Mark, and we're only exactly. like five minutes in. Brenta Bolton was 23 when she met the man who would go on to become her husband at a young farmer's event at the Winter Gardens in Droitwich in Worcestershire in 1953. Now, just to set the scene, the Winter Gardens isn't some random park in Droitwich. It was a, an amazing old school dinner dance venue. I, I don't know if it's still going, but yeah, it was a very traditional dinner dance venue. Sounds and looks amazing from the photos I've seen. David Venables was just out of his teens, but already carried a weathered complexion that belied his true age. The son of a prominent pig farmer, he'd spent his entire life outside working on the farm. He was mature beyond his years and handsome. And so when Brenda clapped eyes on him that night at the Winter Gardens, she knew instantly that he was the man for her. Brenda lived at home with her parents still, in the tiny hamlet of Rushuk, 
a delightful village with a population of about seven in 1953. Hers was a more sheltered upbringing in comparison to David's. Her parents were very traditional people, conservative in mindset. They cared about appearance, manners and standing within the community. Brenda had been brought up well. She'd been described as prim and proper. And although that term can be used as an insult, I personally think it's not. I think it's a compliment. And I think for her, it would be a compliment. And for her parents, especially, um, you could use it as an insult. But I think they would think that that was really lovely. I'd like to call you out a little bit on your seven people in a village. Well, I mean, I have kind of... Yeah, there were probably, I don't know, a hundred or something, but it's a tiny, tiny village. So. <laughs> I, was like, I started to kind of believe you for a second and then I was like, hang on, three of them are Brenda and her mum and dad. <laughs> yeah, plus she, plus she had two sisters, so that's five. Uh, so having said all of this, I, I do think that Brenda's upbringing was probably quite sheltered, to be honest. She lived a very isolated life in quite a, an isolated rural village. And I think the fact that she was still single at 23 in the 1950s does say a lot. Most people got married when they were about 10 back then. And I'm only speculating, of course, but but I feel that Brenda was maybe a little naive for her age and perhaps even vulnerable. And I think those trips to the Winter Gardens in Droitwich with the young farmers would have been really eye-opening for her and absolutely the highlight in what was perhaps an otherwise quite black and white life. Yeah, I can imagine this being the most glamorous and exciting thing that she'd done ever when she first went and yeah. she'd look forward to it for weeks before. And I was going to say, I completely agree. I think she would have looked forward to these events for literally weeks, months in in building up to it. And I just wanted to make the point that, yeah, in the early 1950s, in these isolated rural communities, public transport didn't really exist. Not everybody had a car it's highly likely that Brenda hadn't set foot outside of her home county her entire life. So yeah, this would have been uh, really eye-opening. Brenda and David courted for seven years, which was quite a long time back in the 50s and perhaps alludes to a slight unwillingness to commit on David's part. But he was a loving boyfriend. He used to drop into Brenda's family home on the way back from selling his produce at the markets in Birmingham and he'd drop in every morning and she would cook him breakfast. And he took her out regularly, and finally, Brenda was really living her best life. In 1960, the couple finally married. Brenda was now 30, and longed to start a family, which of course back then would not have been possible without first marrying. The couple honeymooned in Jersey following their June wedding, and I can imagine Brenda's eyes lighting up when they arrived on that sun-kissed island, giddy with excitement at having ventured outside of Worcestershire, and maybe even hoping to conceive a honeymoon baby. In the months that followed, David and Brenda moved into a brand new house that had been built for them on land gifted to them by David's father. They christened the house Quaking House Farm, and David reared pigs there, while Brenda dutifully became a trad wife. Have you heard of that concept before? No, what is it? I'm guessing traditional. Yeah, it's short for traditional. So there's there's this sort of craze that has swept over TikTok from America. And it's these women that christen themselves trad wives and their whole life revolves around their husband. So they massage the husband's feet. They're cooking him all his favourite food, running his bath. They just literally do everything for their husband and they're like 1950s housewives and very proud of it. So, oh, um, that you know, doesn't sound this... like me, but that sounds like something I want. <laughs> I want a trad wife to do everything for me. Yeah, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 
Brenda and David's home was beautiful and enjoyed magnificent views of the Malvern Hills. In the years that followed, Brenda helped David on the farm and busied herself making their house a home. What she longed for, though, was to start a family, and so too did David, but very sadly that never happened for them. They tried and tried, but without success. Perhaps today it would have been possible with the help of IVF, but maybe, with hindsight, it's a blessing in disguise that they were not bestowed with children. We don't know all of the details, obviously, but I think it's safe to say that the state of Brenda and David's marriage deteriorated throughout the 1960s. The pressure of trying to conceive, the highs, the depressing lows, it all just got too much for them, particularly for David. He began to emotionally withdraw from the marriage and sought comfort elsewhere. More on that in a minute. By 1969, nine years into the marriage, the couple had stopped having sex. They were sleeping in separate beds, in separate bedrooms, and essentially living separate lives. Any hope of a miracle baby was well and truly over now. But ever the traditionalist, there was no way Brenda would entertain the idea of divorce. And David knew that. In his eyes, he was trapped in that marriage, and he was miserable. I imagine, though, for Brenda, she would have felt trapped and miserable also, because, yes, she's not going to even think about the idea of divorce, and they're living in separate bedrooms and stuff, but, you know, that's not necessarily a choice of hers. That is her absolute belief and what is the done thing, so... Like, I, I don't know, like, I feel really sorry for both of them in this entire scenario to not, you know, not have the children that they both wanted and then to just be living this completely loveless life in a really hard lifestyle anyway. Awful. It's it's really sad, isn't it? And I think, yeah, I feel for Brenda, absolutely. And I'll go on to talk about that uh, a bit later. But I think David almost externalised some of his feelings in his treatment towards Brenda and went out and sought comfort elsewhere, which, as I said, I'll explain in a moment. I think Brenda just withdrew and she internalised uh, those frustrations at not being able to start a family. And, um, you know, it changed her. And it was probably less obvious because, as I said, it was internalised. So, yeah, very, very sad for both. So in 1967, David began an affair with his mother's carer, a woman named Lorraine Stiles. He also had a brief liaison d'etre with a woman named Dorothy Rimmel around this time. But unlike his union with Lorraine Stiles, that one didn't really last. In the decade and a half that followed, Lorraine essentially became David's mistress. And when Brenda became aware of her husband's infidelity, she turned a blind eye, most probably thinking, this is my lot now. And of course, this betrayal at the hands of a man who had offered so much hope to a naive 23-year-old Brenda when she'd first set eyes on him in 1953 would have been a devastating blow to her self-esteem, which would be eroded to its very core in the years that followed. David was ultimately a selfish man. As long as he could make his life work for him on his terms, then that was good enough. Screw everyone else. As the 60s turned into the 70s, Brenda became increasingly quiet. She was most likely suffering from depression at this time, and for a long time actually, and she wasn't getting any support for this, not least from David, the one man she should have been able to count on, the man who had vowed to love her in sickness and in health, but those marriage vows were a distant memory now. By 1982, Brenda, who would have been in her late 40s by now, was at an all-time low. 
the menopause had signalled the final hammer blow on any hopes of ever having a family, and years of living a lonely life bereft of love and affection had really taken their toll on her. Perhaps the final straw came when David had made her pack his suitcase for a New Year's Eve tryst he was having with Lorraine at a hotel in the glamorous city of Nottingham. David had made no secret of his plans to see in the new year with his mistress, and I dread to think what that particular New Year's Eve looked like for Brenda. I can oh just my God, picture that's her just at home. Horrible. Isn't it awful? He's really rubbing her nose in this, and she would have been at home, perhaps drowning her sorrows, um, sat there thinking, my husband is fucking some, I won't say the word, but yeah, some tart, I'll say, uh, at some hotel, and she's had to pack his case. It's just so insulting, isn't it? It's awful. And I always, I also feel like she probably was thinking like, oh, because I'm not as glamorous as her or something really, really tragic like that, which is not true at all. Like he's the wanker for doing this. But yeah. I imagine, bless her, she'd have been thinking, it's, po- it's, it's probably my fault because I didn't give him a baby. And it's like, no, not at all. But yeah, I just can't imagine how she must have been just sat seeing in a new year, you know, thinking of all the years that have passed next to the fire, in the cold, on her own. And I um, I think it was a final straw for Brenda, I really do, I think. You know what it's like at New Year, and we talked about it recently on the show. It can be quite, it can be a great time of year because it can help you reflect and really plan and change your life and make decisions. Equally, it can be quite a melancholy time, and a lot of people struggle around New Year. Uh, reflecting on maybe a difficult year or feeling anxious about the time that that's to come so you know I re- it really resonated with me because I've definitely felt like that in the past and I do think it was uh, a turning point for Brenda because actually in the new year she bravely made contact with her GP told him how she'd been feeling and he in turn referred her to an eminent psychiatrist wow uh, to that's get really her the help quite so modern of her needed. to have to have gone and got that help that's incredible yeah this is 1982 yeah and what an amazing doctor doing that as well so as I say I feel this was a turning point and I think it it could have really made a full positive change in Brenda's life this psychiatrist Dr Richards was probably the first person she'd ever felt able to confide in There is no way Brenda would have shared her relationship woes with her family or friends. She was a very private person, very proud, and she would have carried a great deal of shame and guilt, probably, at the state of her marriage. And that guilt would have, of course, been unfounded. But I'm just sure that she would have carried a lot of shame and guilt around the fact that the marriage hadn't worked and they couldn't have had a family. Dr Richards would have no doubt helped Brenda to understand that she was actually in a toxic marriage and maybe he would have eventually equipped her with the strength to divorce David and live a happy life. In the interim at least, he would be a sympathetic ear and would have shown compassion and love towards Brenda, two things that were in short supply at home. And I'm not hinting that Brenda had an affair with Dr Richards, that's not where this is headed. I'm not saying that he actually loved her, I'm just saying that human-to-human care in this form, that kind of care that he would have displayed towards Brenda would have been a wonderful thing and something that she so desperately needed at that time. So I haven't gone into a lot of details actually uh, around the build-up to this, but Brenda was actually suicidal in the months leading up to her seeing the doctor. I mean, I'm not surprised, but God love her, I'm not surprised, but it's awful that she was. Yeah, and I'm not surprised at all. And she contacted the Samaritans 
She'd confessed to them that she'd been having suicidal thoughts and she really was in a desperate place. And I think if you think about it, you know, she's in this really toxic marriage. She's not been able to have children and now she's entered the menopause and that really is the death now on ever being able to have a family even though she was in her late 40s at this point until she started the menopause there must have been a tiny element of hope in her that that it still wasn't too late and she could maybe by some miracle have a baby at some point so uh, yeah as we've kind of alluded to it's just so incredibly sad I, I could actually cry at the thought of this woman being trapped in a destructive marriage too proud too ashamed to emancipate herself. It's incredibly sad. Dr Richards kept detailed notes of his appointments with Brenda, and it's these notes which really give us a fly-on-the-wall insight into the state of her marriage to David. Brenda was clearly the victim of coercive control. David controlled the couple's finances too and financially manipulated Brenda. She was given a very small allowance by David and was expected to run the home on this miserly amount. And I kind of get the impression that they married in 1960. I would say the pin money that David provided to Brenda probably hadn't changed since 1960 and it was now 1982. Yeah, and he'd be saying, well, how come you're not able to do this? Why can other wives provide for their husbands and you can't and like, making her feel awful even though actually no one should you know inflation would have gone up you should have yeah given her more and more options and I to be honest I can't imagine anything that she did would have done would have been right no matter how much money she had I I think you're right I think you've hit the nail on the head he was just totally unhappy with her and he also gaslit her at every opportunity he made her dependent on him and he treated her like shit He would make a point of overly fussing the couple's puppy in front of Brenda, for example. And I think this was his way of saying to her, I am capable of love and affection, but I would rather give it to a dog than to you. I really do think that is what he was kind of doing when he was overly fussing that dog. Yeah, and I mean, even if he's not necessarily thinking and it's not like a conscious decision to do that, you're showing that you think your wife is worth less than the dog in the relationship as well which is even if it's not a conscious thing but he sounds like an absolute narcissist and he sounds like he probably would try and make her feel awful but even if he even if I'm wrong and he wasn't trying to that's what it sounds like isn't it yeah I think that's exactly what what he was a narcissist Although there is no evidence that David was physically abusive towards Brenda this was absolutely a domestically abusive relationship Of course, David didn't like the fact that Brenda was seeking professional help either. I suppose he was worried that his wife may grow in strength and find the courage to stand up to him or to leave him. And if she did leave him, that would be messy for David. He owned the farm with his brother. It was very much a fully-fledged business operation. It was progressive. It was successful. A divorce would be messy. It would have had repercussions not just for David, but it would have reverberated around his entire family. So... Yeah, as I said, David didn't like the fact that Brenda was seeking professional help. It absolutely suited him that she remained vulnerable, broken even. And he even refused her admission to hospital on one occasion. I don't know the details of that, but I'm guessing as next of kin, he was able to make decisions for Brenda when she was perhaps having a particularly severe mental health crisis. Um, So they, they obviously wanted to admit her to hospital and he said no. God, that's so awful, but not unexpected in this case. yeah. Dr Richard's notes detail the complete lack of sympathy David showed towards Brenda. 
It's clear that he withheld affection and basically destroyed her confidence. By the start of May 1982, however, Brenda was beginning to feel better, so she'd reached out to her GP early 1982, then she'd been seeing Dr Richards for a few months, so yeah, by the start of May that year, 1982, she was beginning to feel better. She'd missed her most recent appointment with Dr Richards, but it's very possible that this was because she didn't feel she needed his support anymore. Of course, it's also possible that David had forbidden her from seeing him, or that she'd relapsed into severe mental ill health and was physically incapable of seeing him. But, you know, I like to think that Brenda had turned a corner. She had told her GP that she was feeling better. So I think it's likely that she genuinely was, mentally at least anyway. Because around this time, Brenda had come down with the flu. And this had coincided with a nasty accident at home in which she'd fallen down the stairs. And I know what you're all thinking, but I don't actually think this was at David's hands. Oh, okay, because that was what I was wondering. But Of course, yeah, I get it. And I mean, it could have been, but there is no suggestion from any anybody that it was. But it could have been, but I don't think it actually was. But it was a nasty fall and Brenda had hurt her leg quite badly. She probably did need medical attention, but she didn't seek that. She'd attempted to bandage it herself. And I can imagine David not having any sympathy towards her. Um, and I think with having flu as well, this would have been a pretty miserable time for Brenda. I think those early days of May 1982 or late April 1982... I think she would have largely been confined to her bed, feeling like shit from the flu and likely in quite severe pain from the accident. And she was also suffering from arthritis at this time. So it was a triple whammy of shit. And I'm sure this would have had a negative impact on her mental health. However, when I think about it, I kind of also think maybe not. Maybe this was kind of what she needed, a few days bed rest, where she wasn't running after David being the trad wife. Maybe she was feeling better mentally, she could compartmentalise the physical pain and sort of use that time to really plan and think and think freely and clearly for the first time in a long time about leaving her marriage. Maybe Dr Richards had equipped her with the strength to leave David And she was actually using that time to plan her exit. She is clearly a very, very strong woman that she can deal with so much that she's been put through. So she she sounds like she would have just carried on if she could have done. But the fact that she's even gone to bed shows that she's doing what she has to for herself rather than forcing herself out of bed and making herself worse for David. So I think everything she's been doing with Dr. Richards is, is clearly helping her to find that she's the important person in all of this and and I think David would have hated the changes that he was seeing in his wife around this time because there's no doubt that Brenda was getting better mentally Dr Richards would have been such a support for her and I think she would have been making subtle changes at home and shifting the balance of power in that relationship and I think it would have scared the hell out of David On the 3rd of May, David woke up and discovered that Brenda had vanished. She had literally disappeared into thin air. According to David, the previous day, a Sunday, had been completely normal. Of course, Brenda was still ill, but she had managed to help him out on the farm a little bit, and David said she'd even happily been playing with their puppy on the hearth in front of the fire in the evening. He said she'd seemed fine. David didn't immediately report his wife's disappearance to the police. He mulled things over in his head, sure that she would return any minute. 
When Brenda's friend Vicky Jennings telephoned the house later that morning, he admitted that his wife had vanished. Vicky went over to the house and together she and David spent four hours searching the surrounding area, but there was no sign of Brenda. The following day, on the 4th of May, David visited Worcester Police to report his wife as missing. West Mercia Police used a helicopter to aid in the search and tracker dogs checked farm buildings and derelict properties but no trace of Brenda was found, not even a scent trail. The police search went on for three weeks before it was eventually scaled back. The case was never officially closed, of course, but in time police moved on, and eventually so too did the community. The disappearance of Brenda Venables became a legend that hung over the village of Kempsey, where she'd lived with David. People wondered what had happened to her. There were rumours, and of course David was at the centre of some of them, but he was never arrested or charged in connection with his wife's disappearance. Some speculated that Brenda had finally had enough, that she had snapped, walked out of a marriage and gone to live the life she deserved on some Greek island somewhere. Others reflected on her fragile mental state and thought it probable or possible that she had taken her own life deep in the Worcestershire countryside. It was a mystery, But, with Brenda out of the way, David was finally free to live his life, on his terms, without the risk of his wife taking him for half of everything he owned. In the decades that followed, Brenda's family and friends suffered. Her parents went to their graves not knowing what had happened to their loving daughter. Her sisters, Rita and Jane, spent years waiting for news of their sister, and Brenda's nieces and nephews missed her terribly. Everyone that loved her was left in limbo. Of course, David continued his affair with Lorraine, but that was only for a period. He eventually moved on to a newer model. He would go on to sell that farm to his nephew in 2014. Now in his 80s, it had just become too much for him. And, well, that was that, really. The disappearance of Brenda still hung over the family, but by now there was almost an acceptance that whatever had happened had happened. They would never know the truth, so why torture themselves with endless questions? That's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? But understandable, and you can see why you would. But, yeah, just life carrying on, carrying on around everyone and people coming and going, and then Brenda's never... There's never been an answer all the way until... Now, like it's just it's just so sad isn't it but I can understand why you you know why torture ourselves with not with the not knowing I, I don't think you would ever get over it but I think there would creep in an acceptance that it's happened and an acceptance that you're not ever going to know what actually happened and I think you do just have to get on with your life in some way and, and eventually you do. Decades follow and you're able to, but mm. you'd never forget and you would remember anniversaries and birthdays yeah. for sure. So yeah, they I think they did manage to move on to a large extent, but then everything changed in 2019. 37 years after Brenda had disappeared, she was found. She hadn't made it to some sun-kissed island after all. She hadn't even made it off the farm. She'd been there all along, lying at the bottom of a septic tank in her own effluent. In July 2019, David Venables' nephew, the new owner of Quaking House Farm, telephoned the company that usually serviced the septic tank. It had been the same company that had serviced it for literally decades. There was a blockage, he told them. 
It was an emergency. He needed them to send someone out straight away. The company explained they wouldn't be able to send someone out for some time, and so David's nephew contacted another company, a company who had much more sophisticated equipment at their disposal, equipment that could drain the entire tank and fix the blockage. Alistair Pitt, the engineer tasked with the job, set to work in the days that followed that phone call and began to drain the tank. When he was nearly finished, to his horror, he found a large clump of hair, before uncovering a human skull. A pelvis and thigh bones were also recovered, along with clothing, including half a pair of knickers, a pair of tights, a bra, the remains of some shoes and a sweater. It took a full year for forensic scientists to conclusively prove that the remains belonged to Brenda, and when they did prove that fact, the police charged a now 88-year-old David Venables with the murder of his wife. Oh my goodness. Like, can you imagine poor Alistair Pitt, just his job's awful enough, having to deal with people's poop, but he gets on and he does his job, and then he comes across something like this. You just can't imagine the absolute horror... And then she's been there for, so what's this, like... 37 years. 37 years. And yet some things are still, you know, some shoe, a bit of a shoe and some of her underwear and clothing, you can still see what they were, a sweater. It's really mad, isn't it, that it is. that, that this would is still be there waste. as well? The only thing I could think is that it's essentially airtight. It has to be to stop well, yeah. any smells it needs and stuff, to be. so... You don't want that near your house otherwise. No. So the air hasn't got in, but this is liquidised waste, and her body has been there for 37 years, and yeah, her skeletal remains are there at the bottom, and there's hair there, there's a large clump of hair, and like you say, yeah, there's clothes. They are still largely intact, so it's quite weird. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about this. Um, the, there's parallels, aren't there, with the case of Helen Bailey, Uh, So her husband uh, did the same, basically. He killed her and then dumped the body in the septic tank on the grounds of her house. With this, um, it just kind of made me think that, uh, and this is really graphic, but I wonder, every time David took a shit in that house and flushed the toilet, was he secretly thinking to himself, fuck you? He knows that his waste is making its way into that septic oh, tank. Oh, God, Mark, that is a horrible thing to think. Isn't it? I know it's graphic it and It might vile, well be, yeah. So it oh. just made me think, was that... Did he kind of get off on that almost? What a fucking prick as well. Like, it's horrific enough, but you've left her then in, like, a grave of absolute... It's just like an insult after yeah, insult after insult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. There's, there's no... Um, What's the word? I can't compassion, think. maybe, but not that there would be compassion when you've murdered no. your wife, but dignity. Dignity, no dignity, that's it. Yeah. So after nearly four decades, the mystery of the disappearance of Brenda Venables had finally been solved. And yeah, it just uh, the fact that she was there all along is just crazy. When initially advised that remains suspected to be that of his wife had been discovered in a septic tank on the farm he used to own, David said he was amazed and absolutely flabbergasted. And I'm sure he was. After so long, and now in his late 80s, he must have really thought that this would be a secret he would take with him to his grave. He must have thought he'd gotten away with this. He must have felt safe, even in 2014, when he sold that farm to his nephew. Yeah, like, fuck you, I'm so, like, I, we talk yeah. about this so often, don't we, people oh waiting God, yeah. for that knock on the door, 
And I'm just like, thank, I'm really pleased that he was still alive to get that knock and to get that charge because I would have hated it if you'd have said he died like six weeks before or something like that and then they found her body. I'm glad that it caught up with him. Yeah, and I kind of think, yes, it probably was a shock, but then I kind of think maybe his nephew had told him that he was having issues with a septic tank, a blockage. Maybe David thought, this is it, fuck, my time is up, who knows? But I do like to think that David suffered some severe anxiety in the days leading up to Brenda's remains being discovered. And I also wonder... I wonder if there were times in, uh, certainly I think since he'd sold the farm in 2014, I wonder if there was ever talk with his nephew about the septic tank or David encouraging the nephew to continue using the existing company that wasn't as sophisticated and didn't drain the tank fully, for example. So yeah, I wonder if there were a few moments for him where he thought, oh God, I shouldn't have sold this farm because uh, the secret could come out now. When the case came to court last year, David denied being involved in his wife's death. He said theirs was a loving, intimate marriage. He said he had no motive for wanting her dead. But his pack of lies were exposed in front of the jury when the notes Brenda's psychiatrist, Dr Richards, had made laid bare the true state of their marriage. I'm so glad that she'd gone to Dr Richards. Oh, it's Imagine like if she speaking... hadn't. I know, because it wouldn't have been documented then. Furthermore, David's affair with Lorraine was exposed, and although she died in 2017, her words were spoken in court from beyond the grave. A statement she'd made to police in 1984, just two years after Brenda had vanished, was read out, which detailed her surprise at David's lack of concern around his missing wife. Oh, fair play to her. Yeah, I I think, yeah, she'd, she'd been really honest. She'd gone, well, the police had come to her a couple of years after, and she'd given this statement. She'd been honest. She'd said that David had phoned her when Brenda had been reported missing. He'd said, my wife's gone missing. I didn't want you to read it in the papers. I wanted you to hear it from me. She said that he sounded unusually calm and composed in that situation. She said he then visited her for the first time after his wife had disappeared two weeks later and he didn't even mention Brenda's disappearance, which she found really odd. And Lorraine had actually met Brenda, um, so they had met because Lorraine was uh, David's mother's carer. So, you know, they had met. So it was just weird that David hadn't mentioned it and wasn't concerned. West Mercia Police Constable Peter Sharrock, who was among the search teams, told the hearing how the septic tank was apparently overlooked during the initial searches. He said, At the time it just looked like a pad of concrete and I didn't pay any attention. The word is hindsight, really. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit. We will put photos on social media of this uh, slab of concrete which uh, the septic tank lies underneath. I just wanted to make it clear that the septic tank was actually initially for decades uh, and, you know, decades following Brenda's disappearance. It was very much hidden on that farm. There was a huge bush over it, um, really uh, overgrown uh, shit, like bushes and shit. And I think only about two or three people knew of the septic tank's existence. Yeah, because I think it's not the sort of bit that you'd keep nice and pretty. As long as you can get your hose when the septic tank company come, as long as they can do their job and it's plumbed in, it's not a part of your outbuildings that's going to get used on a daily basis from the outside. Um, It's not something that you need to keep clean and tidy, is it? And I also think if you're not familiar with a septic tank, if you've not had one or you don't know anyone that's got one, 
Um, I kind of think that you wouldn't really have an understanding of what that is. You'd just see a bit of a slab of concrete with a manhole cover and think, oh, it's just part of the drainage. I don't know. But either way, the police didn't even really see it because it was so hidden in dense overgrowth from a bush. And sometimes the things that are hidden in, in plain sight are the are the easiest to miss because, yeah, like, you wouldn't... They probably, I doubt thought to check in the walls of the building you know things like that which are definitely places that a body could have been hidden but they may not have checked because why would you it's the wall it's not and so that must be really really frustrating for the police but I I don't hold that against them that they didn't have it checked it's a shame because obviously a lot could have been found out but I kind of get it a lot of farm buildings and outbuildings you wouldn't really know what they were. You just kind of look in because you're looking for a woman who's gone missing and you're worried that she's been injured and is, has fallen down somewhere rather than looking for the hiding place of a dead body. And I, th- I think that's also the other point is that, yeah, this is multiple acres of arable farming land, uh, quite diverse land and quite diverse landscape. And I suppose it, it always could have been possible that Brenda had gone out for a walk to clear her head and had fallen down a, a well or something that had been covered over at some point. That Anything could have happened and there were all sorts of rumours within the community. Um, so, yeah, some of those did focus on David, as I said, but not all of them. Lots of people did speculate that she'd had an accident, that she had... Uh, taken her own life in the deep in the Worcestershire countryside or that she'd run off so uh, yes it's easy now with hindsight to say well of course it was David all along but back then uh, people thought that was one of several credible options. Prosecutor Michael Burroughs QC told the court it was beyond belief that Mrs Venables had taken her own life though by climbing into the septic tank. He told jurors it would have been impossible for her to have somehow shifted the heavy lid covering the opening before then placing it back above her. Which can you sort of understand? You know, oh there's, my a, God, it's a manhole 100%. cover. There's no chance you that she would have done no. that. I mean, to just lift it herself from the ground would have been tough, but to then kind of within the septic tank drag it back at no it's impossible that's not going to happen this kind of this kind of reminds me as well of um the elisa lamb case where she was found in the water tank above the hotel cecil and there was a lot of discussion around the fact that the water tank lid was shut so if she had have climbed in she would have somehow had to climb in and then pull the lid down But then there's other evidence that says that the lid actually wasn't down and the reason that someone went, when they went up on the roof, that was what they looked into first. Mm. Obviously, the water was dodgy and it was disgusting. So they were going to be checking the water tanks anyway because they thought an animal had got in, but that the lid was actually open. And there's a lot of um, the, the supernatural side or the murder side of that case all a lot of it kind of talks about the fact that she would have had to have pulled the lid back down on top of herself whereas the mental yeah. health crisis side um of a theory then relies on the fact that the lid wasn't down and i don't know for definite whether it's ever been conclusive conclusively kind of specified either way about with the hotel cecil but yeah that kind of reminds me of that that you're just not going to do that you're not going to have got into the septic tank even if it was physically possible to then somehow close it on top of yourself. If you were going to kill yourself by falling into like a deep hole because you knew that would break your neck, that would be a bit different, but that's not 
what they're trying to say would be the case. So it's just absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? It's no yeah. way that that's the the right theory. And also, it's D- David had kind of fucked himself over in a way because yeah, it's so you can't ever dress this up as an accident. Someone has put her in that septic tank, so and it's likely that it was you. Whereas had he had he found a, a well that was partially exposed or partially hidden over and put her down that, then at least it could have potentially been explained as an accident and yeah. he may have got away with this. But but yeah, the fact that she was in the septic tank, there's only one way she could have got in there, and that's that somebody had put her in it. So Michael Burroughs QC also said that it was preposterous to suppose that Mrs Venables walked out of their house that night and was confronted by somebody else outside uh, the house that then abducted her and murdered her, which, you know, I don't think is impossible, but it is like, like he says, it's preposterous to suppose that that happened. Uh, You know, that didn't happen either. David's to blame for this. And yeah, he said there is only one explanation, and that is that David Venables had put his wife in that septic tank. Burroughs speculated that David had murdered Brenda on either Saturday the 1st of May or Sunday the 2nd of May, before then dragging her fully clothed body across the garden to dispose of it in that septic tank. He had then deliberately waited a couple of days before reporting her as missing, in order for any scent trace to have disappeared, lest the dogs track Brenda's corpse to that tank, which I thought was quite clever. That's really clever, yeah. A majority verdict of 10 to 2 was reached and David Venables was found guilty of Brenda's murder. At the age of 88, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 18 years. And he will, of course, die behind bars. And there was a lot of debate around the sentencing for David because of his age. Um, I read all of the sentencing remarks. They're really interesting. And David, David's health was or has been in decline in recent years. He had bowel cancer. He has gotten over that. But I think he's got a colostomy bag. He needs to use the toilet every hour. And of course, that's more difficult to to do in prison compared to in the comfort of your own home but I'm kind of pleased that he's in quite a bit of discomfort in prison uh, and those aren't easy surroundings in which to live your life when you've got conditions such as his Um, and also the judge kind of cast a lot of doubt on David David's claims because he claimed that he was suffering from dementia and that would have also reduced his sentence. And the, the judge kind of said, no, you, you've drawn in court. I have witnessed you draw detailed plans of your home, um, a home which you moved out of years ago. And you've drawn detailed plans. Your memory's fine. Don't pull the wool over our eyes kind of thing. Well, I do, it's, it's such a tricky one, isn't it? Because you, you never want to wish um, pain on somebody or suffering no, I know. on somebody, I did think but that, at yeah. the same time, what he put Brenda through, and then to put Brenda's family through with the man- mental anguish, I'm the same as you. I'm kind of like, oh fuck you, David. I don't care. Like you should be in prison till you die because you got to live those 37 years having a wonderful time with your um, with your mistress, various mistresses, yeah, various mistresses, like. You'd not only had your own life when your wife was around, but you then got rid of her so that she wouldn't try and take half of what actually she was entitled to anyway as well. Yeah, like, I'm never really the sort to kind of be, like, prisons that answer, but actually I do want, I would have wanted him to have some sort of suffering and they couldn't have given him any sort of financial penalty. That's not going to make him suffer. They're not going to give him community service. So actually to know that you're in prison now for the rest of your life, I think that's... I think that's totally valid and fair in this case. 
I agree. And I think it must have been a really heart-stopping moment for Brenda's family when they were told that her body had been discovered. I think it would have really brought them a sense of closure, but also reopened these wounds. And it would have felt really sad to know that that's how her life ended and where she had been for 37 years. In a statement after the sentencing, Brenda's family said they'd been devastated by a disappearance. They said she was kind and caring and has been greatly missed. We, her surviving family, are thankful that Brenda was found and that we're able to lay her to rest with her parents in a place of security, calm and dignity. And that's where I wanted to end. So incredibly sad season finale for us. Um, yeah. It's just such a sad, sad case and... I I kind of kind of find myself going back to the beginning where we talked about pigs and all of that sort of thing and I do think like well, how like it's interesting that he didn't decide to like use the pigs as some way to dispose of her body or something but I am so glad that he didn't because at least her family then got answers but what a horrific way to just leave her rotting it's just awful yeah. And it also meant that her remains could be recovered and she could be then buried with her mum and dad. So there is, yeah, I think it's it's definitely the better alternative. But equally, she was in a septic tank for 37 years. It's it's beyond belief, isn't it? Yeah. While we were recording, I had a little look at the like the septic tank and I think, yeah, most people would have just walked past that thinking it was just another drain element probably not something that you're going to be able to pull up or not and I I do kind of go back to what what we were saying about how they're looking for a missing person they're going to be checking things that somebody could have accidentally fallen into there's no evidence that they found of a murder at all so they're not looking at it from that angle and I feel bad for the police though that they've said you know that's hindsight but you I hope that they don't kind of beat themselves up about it too much Mm. but anyway I do think yeah I think that's a really nice way to finish is to think about Brenda laid to rest properly given some dignity at last yeah thank you for listening and we'll be back on the 8th of March with the return of Seeing Red for our season 9 premiere so we will see you then see you then guys bye bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.